Welcome to Craftlet, the podcast for crafters who like books. My name is Heather Wardover, and I'm podcasting here from the glorious Hudson River Valley in the little village of Croton on Hudson, New York. Out of time. Well, good morning. I am podcasting this morning while my sons are in the other room watching an edition of The Electric Company because I am out of time. And this week, uh, I have almost nothing except for the book uh, to offer you. I had last night when I would have been putting the show together, I actually got to have dinner with Arun Gandhi, the grandson of Mahatma Gandhi. And um, it was really quite an experience. He is a generous and sweet and kind man, exactly how you would expect Gandhi's grandson to be. And it, it was also interesting because he, while he grew up in South Africa, um, he did get sent back to India to live with his grandfather for a while. And so he has very specific memories and, um, and a lot of, a lot of great stories to tell, for instance, and this is not in the film. Um, so I, and I haven't finished Gandhi's autobiography yet, so I had no idea. And then I'll get off this topic. Um, Gandhi met his assassin, the, the guy who killed him ultimately had tried to kill him eight times. And the fourth time he tried to kill him, uh, he, he got kind of caught and Gandhi stopped and sat there and talked to him and said, you know, dude, what's up? Why, why do you keep trying to kill me? And they had a, a long conversation and this guy explained his political stance and Gandhi said, well, okay, look, I'm going to keep trying to stay alive, and I guess you're going to keep trying to kill me, so that's, that's just the way it's going to be. And they just left it at that. And then one of the reasons why in the movie it kind of implies, hang on, I have a son, just a second. My son needed to know how to spell a word. Um, <laughs> sorry about that. I haven't tried doing this before with the boys at home. Um, the thing that they imply in the movie, but they never really get into, is that the government was probably involved in um, assassinating Gandhi. And the reason that the family thinks that's true is because on the fifth attempt, which was January 20th of the year that he was actually killed, um, the police caught two of the conspirators and questioned them and got their names and addresses and then let them go. And for a month, the government, the police, everybody had uh, the names and addresses of all the conspirators, and they did nothing. And as Arun Gandhi said, it is hard to believe that a police force that was trained by the British could not find the addresses or the people. And so the, the family is fairly convinced that, um, that the, the government was in on it, because of course the people who were in power were in power and why would they want the british to leave they were enjoying success and power and uh, quite a lot of money and uh, why would they want the rabble in control and not only that but why would they want the caste system to go it was certainly benefiting them 
So it was very interesting. He also said that it was uh, the movie, the uh, the Attenborough movie, was uh, very accurate. He was very happy. The family is very happy with the film. They collaborated on it, and um, they feel that it is a, a very accurate portrayal of Gandhi in every respect. So if you haven't seen the movie lately, you might want to go pick it up. That's the end of my my Gandhi story, but it is also why I didn't have any time to prepare uh, any cool, funky stuff for you guys. Instead, um, I am I have gotten information on copyright law, which is what Amy and I had been uh, emailing back and forth about last week. And I'm going to start a new segment. I might not be able to start it until after I move, uh, but I'm going to try. And um, it'll kind of be a, a little book advertisement thing because um, because one of the things we love is books. So getting on to books, Pride and Prejudice. This week we uh, we get to see, well, last week we saw the fallout from Jane being so reserved. Here was poor Darcy thinking that he was helping his friend Bingley because he didn't think Jane was serious about Bingley. And of course we know that's very far from the truth that Jane is just very reserved and trying to walk that razor's edge of what women are allowed to do and what they aren't allowed to do. And that was um, disastrous in this case. So woe to the cautious woman. That was very sad. But the real important moment out of last week was when Elizabeth realized that she was probably wrong about Wickham. And therefore, it means that Darcy is not the heartless cad that she thought he was. That, that Darcy actually behaved rather well and Wickham not so much. So that's a huge turning point for Elizabeth emotionally and of course very important for us in the story because it opens up the doorway for her feeling a little differently about Darcy. Today's story, uh, in today's chapters, we get a little bit more of the wonderful Collins idiocy and he is, oh, he is just so himself. And then as far as Pride and Prejudice go, we now get to see all of the um, the kind of crumbling of the house of cards that Darcy and Elizabeth have built about each other. There are prejudices against each other and their kind of overweening pride, how, um, how it, it blinded them to what was really going on. All of that starts to fall apart today. Plus, today, please watch for the groundwork of Eminent Disaster. These are the chapters where doom knocks. So, without further ado, and with huge apologies for such a short intro, it will be longer next week, the next three chapters of Pride and Prejudice. Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen Chapter 38 On Saturday morning, Elizabeth and Mr. Collins met for breakfast a few minutes before the others appeared, and he took the opportunity of paying the parting civilities which he deemed indispensably necessary. "'I know not, Miss Elizabeth,' said he, "'whether Mrs. Collins has yet expressed her sense of your kindness in coming to us, "'but I am very certain you will not leave the house without receiving her thanks for it. "'The favor of your company has been much felt, I assure you. "'We know how little there is to tempt anyone to our humble abode. "'Our plain manner of living, our small rooms and few domestics, "'and the little we see of the world,' must make Hunsford extremely dull to a young lady like yourself, 
but I hope you will believe us grateful for the condescension, and that we have done everything in our power to prevent your spending your time unpleasantly. Elizabeth was eager with her thanks and assurances of happiness. She had spent six weeks with great enjoyment, and the pleasure of being with Charlotte, and the kind attentions she had received, must make her feel the obliged. Mr. Collins was gratified, and with a more smiling solemnity replied, "'It gives me great pleasure to hear that you have passed your time not disagreeably. We have certainly done our best.' and most fortunately having it in our power to introduce you to very superior society, and, from our connection with Rosings, the frequent means of varying the humble home scene, I think we may flatter ourselves that your Hunsford visit cannot have been entirely irksome. Our situation with regard to Lady Catherine's family is indeed the sort of extraordinary advantage and blessing which few can boast. You see on what a footing we are. You see how continually we are engaged there. In truth, I must acknowledge that, with all the disadvantages of this humble parsonage, I should not think any one abiding in it an object of compassion while they are sharers of our intimacy at Rosings. Words were insufficient for the elevation of his feelings, and he was obliged to walk about the room, while Elizabeth tried to unite civility and truth in a few short sentences. "'You may, in fact, carry a very favorable report of us into Hertfordshire, my dear cousin. I flatter myself at least that you will be able to do so. Lady Catherine's great attentions to Mrs. Collins you have been a daily witness of, and altogether I trust it does not appear that your friend has drawn an unfortunate—but on this point it will be as well to be silent.' Only let me assure you, my dear Elizabeth, that I can from my heart most cordially wish you equal felicity in marriage. My dear Charlotte and I have but one mind, and one way of thinking. There is in everything a most remarkable resemblance of character and ideas between us. We seem to have been designed for each other. Elizabeth could safely say that it was a great happiness where that was the case, and, with equal sincerity, could add that she firmly believed and rejoiced in his domestic comforts. She was not sorry, however, to have the recital of them interrupted by the lady from whom they sprang. Poor Charlotte! It was melancholy to leave her to such society. But she had chosen it with her eyes open, and, though evidently regretting that her visitors were to go, she did not seem to ask for compassion. Her home and her housekeeping, her parish and her poultry, and all their dependent concerns had not yet lost their charms. At length the chaise arrived, the trunks were fastened on, the parcels placed within, and it was pronounced to be ready. After an affectionate parting between the friends, Elizabeth was attended to the carriage by Mr. Collins, and as they walked down the garden, he was commissioning her with his best respects to all her family, not forgetting his thanks for the kindness he had received at Longbourn in the winter, and his compliments to Mr. and Mrs. Gardiner, though unknown. He then handed her in. Maria followed, and the door was on the point of being closed, when he suddenly reminded them, with some consternation, that they had hitherto forgotten to leave any message for the ladies at Rosings. "'But,' he added, "'you will, of course, wish to have your humble respects delivered to them, 
with your grateful thanks for their kindness to you while you have been here. Elizabeth made no objection. The door was then allowed to be shut, and the carriage drove off. Good gracious, cried Maria, after a few minutes' silence. It seems but a day or two since we first came. And yet how many things have happened! A great many indeed, said her companion with a sigh. We have dined nine times at Rosings, besides drinking tea there twice. How much I shall have to tell! Elizabeth added privately, and how much I shall have to conceal! Their journey was performed without much conversation, or any alarm, and within four hours of their leaving Hunsford they reached Mr. Gardiner's house, where they were to remain a few days. Jane looked well, and Elizabeth had little opportunity of studying her spirits amidst the various engagements which the kindness of her aunt had reserved for them. But Jane was to go home with her, and at Longbourn there would be leisure enough for observation. It was not without an effort, meanwhile, that she could wait even for Longbourn before she told her sister of Mr. Darcy's proposals. To know that she had the power of revealing what would so exceedingly astonish Jane, and must, at the same time, so highly gratify whatever of her vanity she had not yet been able to reason away, was such a temptation to openness as nothing could have conquered but the state of indecision in which she remained as to the extent of what she should communicate, and her fear, if she once entered on the subject, of being hurried into repeating something of Bingley, which might only grieve her sister further. End of chapter 38 Chapter 39 It was the second week in May in which the three young ladies set out together from Gracechurch Street for the town of Blank in Hertfordshire, and as they drew near the appointed inn where Mr. Bennet's carriage was to meet them, they quickly perceived, in token of the coachman's punctuality, both Kitty and Lydia looking out of a dining-room upstairs. These two girls had been above an hour in the place, happily employed in visiting an opposite milliner, watching the sentinel on guard, and dressing a salad and cucumber. After welcoming their sisters, they triumphantly displayed a table set out with such cold meat as an inn larder usually affords, exclaiming, "'Is not this nice? Is not this an agreeable surprise?' "'And we meant to treat you all,' added Lydia. "'But you must lend us the money, for we have spent hours at the shop out there.' Then, showing her purchases, "'Look here! I have bought this bonnet. I do not think it is very pretty.' "'but I thought I might as well buy it as not. "'I shall put it to pieces as soon as I get home "'and see if I can make it up any better.' "'And when her sisters abused it as ugly, "'she added with perfect unconcern, "'Oh, but there were two or three much uglier in the shop, "'and when I have bought some prettier coloured satin "'to trim it with fresh, I think it will be very tolerable. "'Besides, it will not much signify what one wears this summer, "'after the blank shirm have left Meryton.' "'and they are going in a fortnight.' "'Are they indeed?' cried Elizabeth, with the greatest satisfaction. "'They are going to be encamped near Brighton, "'and I do so want Papa to take us all there for the summer. "'It would be such a delicious scheme, "'and I dare say it would hardly cost anything at all. "'Mamma would like to go too, of all things, 
"'Only think what a miserable summer else we shall have.' "'Yes,' thought Elizabeth, "'that would be a delightful scheme indeed, "'and completely do for us at once. "'Good heaven! "'Brighton and a whole campful of soldiers to us, "'who have been overset already "'by one poor regiment of militia "'and the monthly balls of Meryton.' "'Now I have got some news for you,' said Lydia, as they sat down at table. "'What do you think? It is excellent news, capital news, and about a certain person we all like.' Jane and Elizabeth looked at each other, and the waiter was told he need not stay. Lydia laughed and said, "'Aye, that is just like your formality and discretion. You thought the waiter must not hear, as if he cared.' I dare say he often hears worse things said than I am going to say. But he is an ugly fellow. I am glad he is gone. I never saw such a long chin in my life. Well, but now for my news. It is about dear Wickham. Too good for the waiter, is it not? There is no danger of Wickham's marrying Mary King. There's for you. She is gone down to her uncle at Liverpool. Gone to stay. Wickham is safe. "'And Mary King is safe,' added Elizabeth, "'safe from a connection imprudent as to fortune. "'She is a great fool for going away, if she liked him. "'But I hope there is no strong attachment on either side,' said Jane. "'I am sure there is not on his. "'I will answer for it. "'He never cared three straws about her. "'Who could about such a nasty little freckled thing?' "'Elizabeth was shocked to think that,' However incapable of such coarseness of expression herself, the coarseness of the sentiment was little other than her own breast had harbored and fancied liberal. As soon as all had ate and the elder ones paid, the carriage was ordered, and after some contrivance the whole party, with all their boxes, work-bags, and parcels, and the unwelcome addition of Kitty's and Lydia's purchases, were seated in it. "'How nicely we are all crammed in!' cried Lydia." I am glad I bought my bonnet, if it is only for the fun of having another hand-box. Well, now, let us be quite comfortable and snug and talk and laugh all the way home. And in the first place, let us hear what has happened to you all since you went away. Have you seen any pleasant men? Have you had any flirting? I was in great hopes that one of you would have got a husband before you came back. Jane will be quite an old maid soon, I declare. She is almost three-and-twenty. "'Lord, how ashamed I should be of not being married before three-and-twenty! "'My Aunt Phillips wants you so to get husbands, you can't think. "'She says Lizzie had better have taken Mr. Collins, "'but I do not think there would have been any fun in it. "'Lord, how I should like to be married before any of you, "'and then I would chaperone you about to all the balls. "'Dear me, we had such a good piece of fun the other day at Colonel Forster's. "'Kitty and me were to spend the day there.' "'and Mrs. Forster promised to have a little dance in the evening. "'By the by, Mrs. Forster and me are such friends. "'And so she asked the two Harringtons to come, "'but Harriet was ill, and so Penn was forced to come by herself. "'And then, what do you think we did? "'We dressed up Chamberlain in woman's clothes on purpose to pass for a lady. "'Only think what fun! "'Not a soul knew of it, but Colonel and Mrs. Forster and Kitty and me. "'except my aunt, for we were forced to borrow one of her gowns, "'and you cannot imagine how well he looked. "'When Denny and Wickham and Pratt and two or three more of the men came in, "'they did not know him in the least. "'Lord, how I laughed! "'And so did Mrs. Forster. 
I thought I should have died. And that made the men suspect something, and then they found out what was the matter. With such kinds of histories of their parties and good jokes, did Lydia, assisted by Kitty's hints and additions, endeavor to amuse her companions all the way to Longbourn. Elizabeth listened as little as she could, but there was no escaping the frequent mention of Wickham's name. Their reception at home was most kind. Mrs. Bennet rejoiced to see Jane in undiminished beauty, and more than once during dinner did Mr. Bennet say voluntarily to Elizabeth, I am glad you are come back, Lizzie. Their party in the dining-room was large, for almost all the Lucases came to meet Maria and hear the news, and various were the subjects that occupied them. Lady Lucas was inquiring of Maria after the welfare and poultry of her eldest daughter. Mrs. Bennet was doubly engaged, on one hand collecting an account of the present fashions from Jane, who sat some way below her, and on the other retailing them all to the younger Lucases, and Lydia, in a voice rather louder than any other person's, was enumerating the various pleasures of the morning to anybody who would hear her. "'Oh, Mary,' said she, "'I wish you had gone with us, for we had such fun. As we went along, Kitty and I drew up the blinds and pretended there was nobody in the coach, and I should have gone so all the way if Kitty had not been sick. And when we got to the George, I do think we behaved very handsomely, for we treated the other three with the nicest cold luncheon in the world.' "'and if you would have gone, we would have treated you, too. "'And then when we came away, it was such fun. "'I thought we never should have gotten to the coach. "'I was ready to die of laughter. "'And then we were so merry all the way home. "'We talked and laughed so loud "'that anybody might have heard us ten miles off.' "'To this Mary gravely replied, "'Far be it from me, my dear sister, "'to depreciate such pleasures.' they would doubtless be congenial with the generality of female minds. But I confess they would have no charms for me. I should infinitely prefer a book. But of this answer Lydia heard not a word. She seldom listened to anybody for more than half a minute, and never attended to Mary at all. In the afternoon Lydia was urgent with the rest of the girls to walk to Maryton to see how everybody went on but Elizabeth steadily opposed the scheme. It should not be said that the Miss Bennets could not be at home half a day before they were in pursuit of the officers. There was another reason, too, for her opposition. She dreaded seeing Mr. Wickham again, and was resolved to avoid it as long as possible. The comfort to her of the regiment's approaching removal was indeed beyond expression. In a fortnight they were to go, and once gone, she hoped there could be nothing more to plague her on this account. She had not been many hours at home before she found that the Brighton scheme, of which Lydia had given them a hint at the inn, was under frequent discussion between her parents. Elizabeth saw directly that her father had not the smallest intention of yielding, but his answers were at the same time so vague and equivocal that her mother, though often disheartened, had never yet despaired of succeeding at last. End of chapter 39 Chapter 40 Elizabeth's impatience to acquaint Jane with what had happened could no longer be overcome, and at length, resolving to suppress every particular in which her sister was concerned, 
and preparing her to be surprised, she related to her the next morning the chief of the scene between Mr. Darcy and herself. Miss Bennet's astonishment was soon lessened by the strong sisterly partiality which made any admiration of Elizabeth appear perfectly natural, and all surprise was shortly lost in other feelings. She was sorry that Mr. Darcy should have delivered his sentiments in a manner so little suited to recommend him, but still more she was grieved for the unhappiness which her sister's refusal must have given him. "'His being so sure of succeeding was wrong,' said she, "'and certainly ought not to have appeared. "'But consider how much it must increase his disappointment.' "'Indeed,' replied Elizabeth, "'I am heartily sorry for him, "'but he has other feelings "'which will probably soon drive away his regard for me. "'You do not blame me, however, for refusing him.' "'Blame you? Oh, no!' "'But you blame me for having spoken so warmly of Wickham? "'No, I do not know that you were wrong in saying what you did. "'But you will know it when I tell you what happened the very next day.' "'She then spoke of the letter, "'repeating the whole of its contents as far as they concerned George Wickham. "'What a stroke was this for poor Jane, "'who would willingly have gone through the world "'without believing that so much wickedness existed "'in the whole race of mankind.' as was here collected in one individual. Nor was Darcy's vindication, though grateful to her feelings, capable of consoling her for such discovery. Most earnestly did she labor to prove the probability of error, and seek to clear the one without involving the other. "'This will not do,' said Elizabeth. "'You never will be able to make both of them good for anything. Take your choice, but you must be satisfied with only one.' There is but such a quantity of merit between them, just enough to make one good sort of man, and of late it has been shifting about pretty much. For my part, I am inclined to believe it all Darcy's, but you shall do as you choose. It was some time, however, before a smile could be extorted from Jane. I do not know when I have been more shocked, said she. Wickham so very bad. It is almost past belief. "'And poor Mr. Darcy! "'Dear Lizzie, only consider what he must have suffered. "'Such a disappointment, and with the knowledge of your ill opinion, too, "'and having to relate such a thing of his sister. "'It is really too distressing. "'I am sure you must feel it so.' "'Oh, no, my regret and compassion are all done away "'by seeing you so full of both. "'I know you will do him such ample justice.' "'that I am growing every moment more unconcerned and indifferent. "'Your profusion makes me saving, "'and if you lament over him much longer, "'my heart will be as light as a feather. "'Poor Wickham! "'There is such an expression of goodness in his countenance, "'such an openness and gentleness in his manner. "'There certainly was some great mismanagement "'in the education of these two young men. "'One has got all the goodness, "'and the other all the appearance of it. "'I never thought Mr. Darcy so deficient in the appearance of it as you used to do. "'And yet I meant to be uncommonly clever in taking so decided a dislike to him, without any reason. "'It is such a spur to one's genius, such an opening for wit, to have a dislike of that kind. "'One may be continually abusive without saying anything just, "'but one cannot always be laughing at a man 
without now and then stumbling on something witty. Lizzie, when you first read that letter, I am sure you could not treat the matter as you do now. Indeed, I could not. I was uncomfortable enough, I may say unhappy, and with no one to speak to about what I felt, no Jane to comfort me and say that I had not been so very weak and vain and nonsensical as I knew I had. Oh, how I wanted you! How unfortunate that you should have used such very strong expressions in speaking of Wickham to Mr. Darcy, for now they do appear wholly undeserved. Certainly, but the misfortune of speaking with bitterness is a most natural consequence of the prejudice I had been encouraging. There is one point on which I want your advice. I want to be told whether I ought, or ought not, to make our acquaintances in general understand Wickham's character. Miss Bennet paused a little, and then replied, "'Surely there can be no occasion for exposing him so dreadfully. What is your opinion?' "'That it ought not to be attempted. Mr. Darcy has not authorized me to make his communication public.' On the contrary, every particular relative to his sister was meant to be kept as much as possible to myself, and if I endeavor to undeceive people as to the rest of his conduct, who will believe me? The general prejudice against Mr. Darcy is so violent that it would be the death of half the good people in Meryton to attempt to place him in an amiable light. I am not equal to it. Wickham will soon be gone, and therefore it will not signify to anyone here what he really is. Some time hence it will be all found out, and then we may laugh at their stupidity in not knowing it before. At present I will say nothing about it. You are quite right. To have his errors made public might ruin him for ever. He is now, perhaps, sorry for what he has done, and anxious to re-establish a character. We must not make him desperate." The tumult of Elizabeth's mind was allayed by this conversation. She had got rid of two of the secrets which had weighed on her for a fortnight, and was certain of a willing listener in Jane whenever she might wish to talk again of either. But there was still something lurking behind, of which prudence forbade the disclosure. She dared not relate the other half of Mr. Darcy's letter, nor explain to her sister how sincerely she had been valued by her friend. Here was knowledge in which no one could partake, and she was sensible that nothing less than a perfect understanding between the parties could justify her in throwing off this last encumbrance of mystery. And then, said she, if that very improbable event should ever take place, I shall merely be able to tell what Bingley may tell in a much more agreeable manner himself." The liberty of communication cannot be mine till it has lost all its value. She was now, on being settled at home, at leisure to observe the real state of her sister's spirits. Jane was not happy. She still cherished a very tender affection for Bingley. Having never even fancied herself in love before, her regard had all the warmth of first attachment, and from her age and disposition greater steadiness than most first attachments often boast, and so fervently did she value his remembrance and prefer him to every other man, that all her good sense and all her attention to the feelings of her friends were requisite to check the indulgence of those regrets which must have been injurious 
to her own health and their tranquillity. "'Well, Lizzie,' said Mrs. Bennet one day, "'what is your opinion now of this sad business of Jane's? "'For my part, I am determined never to speak of it again to anybody. "'I told my sister Philip so the other day. "'But I cannot find out that Jane saw anything of him in London.' "'Well, he is a very undeserving young man, "'and I do not suppose there's the least chance in the world "'of her ever getting him now. "'There is no talk of his coming to Netherfield again in the summer, "'and I have inquired of everybody, too, who is likely to know. "'I do not believe he will ever live at Netherfield any more. "'Oh, well, it is just as he chooses. "'Nobody wants him to come, "'though I shall always say he used my daughter extremely ill.' "'and if I was her, I would not have put up with it. "'Well, my comfort is, I am sure Jane will die of a broken heart, "'and then he will be sorry for what he has done.' "'But as Elizabeth could not receive comfort from any such expectation, "'she made no answer. "'Well, Lizzie,' continued her mother soon afterwards, "'and so the Collinses live very comfortable, do they? "'Well, well, I only hope it will last. "'And what sort of table do they keep?' "'Charlotte is an excellent manager, I dare say. "'If she is half as sharp as her mother, she is saving enough. "'There is nothing extravagant in their housekeeping, I dare say. "'No, nothing at all. "'A great deal of good management, depend upon it. "'Yes, yes. "'They will take care not to outrun their income. "'They will never be distressed for money. "'Well, much good may it do them.' "'And so I suppose they often talk of having Longbourn when your father is dead. "'They look upon it as quite their own, I dare say, whenever that happens.' "'It was a subject which they could not mention before me. "'No, it would have been strange if they had. "'But I make no doubt they often talk of it between themselves. "'Well, if they can be easy with an estate that is not lawfully their own, so much the better. "'I should be ashamed of having one that was only entailed on me.' End of chapter 40 Chapter 41 The first week of their return was soon gone. The second began. It was the last of the regiment's stay in Meryton, and all the young ladies in the neighborhood were drooping apace. The dejection was almost universal. The elder Miss Bennets alone were still able to eat, drink, and sleep, and pursue the usual course of their employments. Very frequently were they reproached for this insensibility by Kitty and Lydia, whose own misery was extreme, and who could not comprehend such hard-heartedness in any of the family. "'Good heaven! What is to become of us? What are we to do?' would they often exclaim in the bitterness of woe. "'How can you be smiling so, Lizzie?' Their affectionate mother shared all their grief— she remembered what she had herself endured on a similar occasion, five-and-twenty years ago. "'I am sure,' said she, "'I cried for two days together when Colonel Miller's regiment went away. "'I thought I should have broken my heart.' "'I am sure I shall break mine,' said Lydia. "'If one could but go to Brighton,' observed Mrs. Bennet. "'Oh, yes, if one could but go to Brighton.' "'But Papa is so disagreeable. "'A little sea-bathing would set me up forever. "'And my Aunt Phillips is sure it would do me a great deal of good,' added Kitty. 
Such were the kind of lamentations resounding perpetually through Longbourn House. Elizabeth tried to be diverted by them, but all sense of pleasure was lost in shame. She felt anew the justice of Mr. Darcy's objections, and never had she been so much disposed to pardon his interference in the views of his friend. But the gloom of Lydia's prospect was shortly cleared away, for she received an invitation from Mrs. Forster, the wife of the colonel of the regiment, to accompany her to Brighton. This invaluable friend was a very young woman and very lately married. A resemblance in good humor and good spirits had recommended her and Lydia to each other, and out of their three months' acquaintance they had been intimate, too. The rapture of Lydia on this occasion her adoration of Mrs. Forster, the delight of Mrs. Bennet, and the mortification of Kitty, are scarcely to be described. Wholly inattentive to her sister's feelings, Lydia flew about the house in restless ecstasy, calling for everyone's congratulations and laughing and talking with more violence than ever, whilst the luckless Kitty continued in the parlor "'repined at her fate in terms as unreasonable as her accent was peevish. "'I cannot see why Mrs. Forster should not ask me as well as Lydia,' said she, "'though I am not her particular friend. "'I have just as much right to be asked as she has, "'and more, too, for I am two years older.' "'In vain did Elizabeth attempt to make her reasonable, "'and Jane to make her resigned. "'As for Elizabeth herself,' This invitation was so far from exciting in her the same feelings as in her mother and Lydia, that she considered it as the death-warrant of all possibility of common sense for the latter, and detestable as such a step must make her, were it known, she could not help secretly advising her father not to let her go. She represented to him all the improprieties of Lydia's general behavior— the little advantage she could derive from the friendship of such a woman as Mrs. Forster, and the probability of her being yet more imprudent with such a companion at Brighton, where the temptations must be greater than at home. He heard her attentively, and then said, "'Lydia will never be easy until she has exposed herself in some public place or other.' and we can never expect her to do it with so little expense or inconvenience to her family as under the present circumstances. "'If you were aware,' said Elizabeth, "'of the very great disadvantage to us all which must arise from the public notice of Lydia's unguarded and imprudent manner, nay, which has already arisen from it, I am sure you would judge differently in the affair.' "'Already arisen?' repeated Mr. Bennet. "'What, has she frightened away some of your lovers? "'Poor little Lizzie! "'But do not be cast down. "'Such squeamish youths as cannot bear to be connected with a little absurdity "'are not worth a regret. "'Come, let me see the list of pitiful fellows "'who have been kept aloof by Lydia's folly.' "'Indeed, you are mistaken. "'I have no injuries to resent. "'It is not of particular, but of general evils, "'which I am now complaining.' Our importance, our respectability in the world, must be affected by the wild volatility, the assurance and disdain of all restraint which mark Lydia's character. 
"'Excuse me, for I must speak plainly. "'If you, my dear father, will not take the trouble "'of checking her exuberant spirits, "'and of teaching her that her present pursuits "'are not to be the business of her life, "'she will soon be beyond the reach of amendment. "'Her character will be fixed, "'and she will, at sixteen, "'be the most determined flirt "'that ever made herself or her family ridiculous. "'A flirt, too, in the worst and meanest degree of flirtation,' without any attraction beyond youth and a tolerable person, and, from the ignorance and emptiness of her mind, wholly unable to ward off any portion of that universal contempt which her rage for admiration will excite. In this danger Kitty also is comprehended. She will follow wherever Lydia leads. Vain, ignorant, idle, and absolutely uncontrolled— "'Oh, my dear father, can you suppose it possible that they will not be censured and despised wherever they are known, and that their sisters will not be often involved in the disgrace?' Mr. Bennet saw that her whole heart was in the subject, and affectionately taking her hand, said in reply, "'Do not make yourself uneasy, my love. Wherever you and Jane are known, you must be respected and valued, and you will not appear to less advantage,' for having a couple of, or I may say three, very silly sisters. We shall have no peace at Longbourn if Lydia does not go to Brighton. Let her go, then. Colonel Forster is a sensible man, and will keep her out of any real mischief, and she is luckily too poor to be an object of prey to anybody. At Brighton she will be of less importance even as a common flirt than she has been here." THE OFFICERS WILL FIND WOMEN BETTER WORTH THEIR NOTICE. LET US HOPE, THEREFORE, THAT HER BEING THERE MAY TEACH HER HER OWN SIGNIFICANCE. AT ANY RATE SHE CANNOT GROW MANY DEGREES WORSE WITHOUT AUTHORIZING US TO LOCK HER UP FOR THE REST OF HER LIFE. WITH THIS ANSWER ELIZABETH WAS FORCED TO BE CONTENT, BUT HER OWN OPINION CONTINUED THE SAME, AND SHE LEFT HIM DISAPPOINTED AND SORRY. It was not in her nature, however, to increase her vexations by dwelling on them. She was confident of having performed her duty, and to fret over unavoidable evils, or augment them by anxiety, was no part of her disposition. Had Lydia and her mother known the substance of her conference with her father, their indignation would hardly have found expression in their united volubility. In Lydia's imagination, a visit to Brighton comprised every possibility of earthly happiness. She saw, with the creative eye of fancy, the streets of that gay bathing-place covered with officers. She saw herself the object of attention to tens and to scores of them at present unknown. She saw all the glories of the camp, its tents stretched forth in beauteous uniformity of lines, crowded with the young and the gay, and dazzling with scarlet. And, to complete the view, she saw herself seated beneath a tent, tenderly flirting with at least six officers at once. Had she known her sisters sought to tear her from such prospects and such realities as these, what would have been her sensations? They could not have been understood only by her mother, who might have felt nearly the same— Lydia's going to Brighton was all that consoled her for her melancholy conviction of her husband's never intending to go there himself. But they were entirely ignorant of what had passed, and their raptures continued with little intermission to the very day of Lydia's leaving home. 
Elizabeth was now to see Mr. Wickham for the last time. Having been frequently in company with him since her return, agitation was pretty well over, the agitations of formal partiality entirely so. She had even learnt to detect, in the very gentleness which had first delighted her, an affectation and a sameness to disgust and weary. In his present behaviour to herself, moreover, she had a fresh source of displeasure, for the inclination he soon testified of renewing those intentions which had marked the early part of their acquaintance could only serve, after what had since passed, to provoke her. She lost all concern for him in finding herself thus selected as the object of such idle and frivolous gallantry, and while she steadily repressed it, could not but feel the reproof contained in his believing that however long, and for whatever cause, his attentions had been withdrawn, her vanity would be gratified, and her preference secured at any time by their renewal. On the very last day of the regiment's remaining at Meryton, he dined with other of the officers at Longbourn, and so little was Elizabeth disposed to part from him in good manner, that on his making some inquiry as to the manner in which her time had passed at Huntsford, she mentioned Colonel Fitzwilliams and Mr. Darcy's having both spent three weeks at Rosings, and asked him if he was acquainted with the former. He looked surprised, displeased, alarmed, but with a moment's recollection and a returning smile, replied that he had formerly seen him often, and after observing that he was a very gentlemanlike man, asked her how she had liked him. Her answer was warmly in his favor. With an air of indifference, he soon afterwards added, "'How long did you say he was at Rosings?' "'Nearly three weeks.' "'And you saw him frequently?' "'Yes, almost every day.' "'His manners are very different from his cousin's.' "'Yes, very different. "'But I think Mr. Darcy improves upon acquaintance.' "'Indeed!' cried Mr. Wickham, with a look which did not escape her. "'And pray, may I ask?' "'But checking himself, he added in a gayer tone, is it in address that he improves? Has he deigned to add aught of civility to his ordinary style? For I dare not hope, he continued in a lower and more serious tone, that he is improved in essentials. Oh, no, said Elizabeth, in essentials I believe he is very much what he ever was. While she spoke, Wickham looked as if scarcely knowing whether to rejoice over her words, or to distrust their meaning. There was a something in her countenance which made him listen with an apprehensive and anxious attention, while she added, When I said that he improved on acquaintance, I did not mean that his mind or his manners were in a state of improvement, but that, from knowing him better, his disposition was better understood. Wickham's alarm now appeared in a heightened complexion and agitated look. For a few minutes he was silent till, shaking off his embarrassment, he turned to her again, and said in the gentlest of accents, "'You, who so well know my feelings towards Mr. Darcy, will readily comprehend how sincerely I must rejoice that he is wise enough to assume even the appearance of what is right. His pride in that direction may be of service, if not to himself, to many others, 
for it must only deter him from such foul misconduct as I have suffered by. I only fear that the sort of cautiousness to which you, I imagine, have been alluding, is merely adopted on his visits to his aunt, of whose good opinion and judgment he stands much in awe. His fear of her has always operated, I know, when they were together, and a good deal is to be imputed to his wish of forwarding the match with Miss de Bourg, which I am certain he has very much at heart. Elizabeth could not repress a smile at this, but she answered only by a slight inclination of the head. She saw that he wanted to engage her on the old subject of his grievances, and she was in no humor to indulge him. The rest of the evening passed with the appearance, on his side, of usual cheerfulness, but with no further attempt to distinguish Elizabeth, and they parted at last with mutual civility, and possibly a mutual desire of never meeting again. When the party broke up, Lydia returned with Mrs. Forster to Meryton, from whence they were to set out early the next morning. The separation between her and her family was rather noisy than pathetic. Kitty was the only one who shed tears, but she did weep from vexation and envy. Mrs. Bennet was diffuse in her good wishes for the felicity of her daughter, and impressive in her injunctions that she should not miss the opportunity of enjoying herself as much as possible, advice which there was every reason to believe would be well attended to and in the clamorous happiness of Lydia herself in bidding farewell, the more gentle adieus of her sisters were uttered without being heard. End of chapter 41 Thank you for listening to chapters 38 through 41. Next week, chapters 42 through 45. We're closing in on the end of it. Have a great week. As always, I'd like to thank Annie Coleman for her reading of the book, and thank you to Josh Christian, who did Chasing Hero. You can find a blog for this podcast at craftlit.blogspot.com or craftlit.libsyn.com. That's craftlit, C-R-A-F-T-L-I-T, all one word, and libsyn, L-I-B-S-Y-N. And of course, you can subscribe at iTunes. And do remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on. <laughs>